Chapter Four of Brewing by A. Cheston Chapman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Four, Boiling. The wort from the mash tun, having been collected in the copper, is ready to be submitted to the boiling process. Sometimes the wort passes through an intermediate vessel known as a receiver or underback, from which it either flows by gravity or is pumped into the copper. The use of such a vessel is determined very largely by the construction of the brewery and the relative positions of the mash tun and the copper. Technologically, the use of such a vessel has no special significance, and the only point of any importance is that the wort shall not be allowed to remain for any length of time in it at or below the temperature at which it leaves the mash tun, since the diastic action would, in that case, obviously be preceding the whole of the time and a larger proportion of fermentable carbohydrate matter would be produced than might be required. In order to avoid this it is customary, in cases where the wort does not flow directly into the copper, to provide the receiving vessel with a steam coil by which the wort can be immediately heated to a temperature at which the diastasy becomes inactive. Thus the wort, when it reaches the copper, will have practically the same carbohydrate composition as when it left the mash tun. The copper may either be an open or a closed vessel capable of holding the whole or a part of the brewing. In the former case the whole of the wort is boiled in one operation, but in the latter two or even three boilings may be necessary, the stronger wort being boiled first and the weaker wort subsequently. The copper is boiled either by fire or by steam, and as a rule a boiling period of about two hours is adopted. The objects of the boiling process are the following. A. The sterilization of the wort. B. The arresting of the action of the diastase. C. The extraction of the flavoring and preservative constituents of the hops. D. The precipitation of undesirable protein matters. And E. The concentration of the wort to the requisite point. It will probably be conducive to clearness if the above five objects are dealt with separately but before doing this it may be convenient to devote a little space to a description of the hop plant, or at least to that portion of it which is used by the brewer. The hop belongs to the Cannabaceae, but it possesses certain affinities with the stinging nettle, and is consequently occasionally classed with the Urtacaceae. It is probable that hops were grown and used chiefly, perhaps for medicinal purposes, at a very early period. Occasional references to hops and hop gardens occur in documents of the ninth century, and it seems not improbable that even at that early period they were occasionally used for the bittering of beer. By the thirteenth century the area under cultivation had apparently increased very considerably, and in the fourteenth century there is plenty of evidence that hops were employed for the bittering of beer, at any rate in Germany and in Holland. It is generally supposed that hops were first introduced into England towards the close of the 15th century, but that they were not received with open arms is evidenced by the fact that both Henry VII and Henry VIII prohibited their use in beer. This ban appears to have remained in force until the reign of Edward VI, when the restrictions as to the employment of hops in brewing were removed and their cultivation was very considerably extended. The common hop is Dioecius. That is to say, the male and female flowers are produced on separate plants. The female flower, which alone is used by the brewer, consists of a cup-shaped corolla with a round ovary containing one seed. 
a considerable number of these flowers grow together in the form of cones which are technically known as strobiles it is these strobiles which constitute the hop as used by the brewer and which contain the various constituents which are of so much importance the following illustration figure two represents the structure of one of these strobiles number one shows a full-grown strobile consisting of an axis or strig on which are arranged bracts of two different kinds the one class of bracts b contains the fruit or seed of the hop whilst the other sb is seedless the hop axis or strig is shown in number two whilst number three and number four show the manner in which the bracts are attached to the strig at the bases of the bracts will be found a yellowish powder known as lupulin which when examined microscopically is found to consist of granules of regular shape and well-defined structure this yellow powder which is usually spoken of by the brewer as condition is of the greatest importance since it contains the bulk of the constituents on which the brewing value of the hop chiefly depends other things being equal therefore the commercial value of a sample of hops is roughly proportional to the amount of lupulin which it contains the percentage of lupulin in different hops is subject to very considerable variations in old hops it may be as low as two or three per cent whilst in new and rich hops it may occur to the extent of sixteen per cent or more it contains the essential oil resins wax bitters and a number of nitrogenous bodies including one or perhaps more alkaloids of these constituents the essential oil certain of the resins and the bitter principles are of special importance the essential oil and bitter substances being the chief flavoring constituents whilst certain of the resins are markedly bactericidal and so confer on the hops their well-known preservative properties the essential oil occurs to the extent of about zero point three to zero point six parts per one hundred parts of the hops or rather it should be said that this is the amount that can be obtained from the hops by distilling them with steam and recovering the oil from the aqueous distillate the oil consists as the author has shown of two hydrocarbons myrcene and humulene inactive caryophyllene and of several oxygenated substances which are present in comparatively small proportions but on which the odor of the oil is largely dependent these oxygenated constituents vary somewhat in oils of different origin and it is due to this variation that a sample of oil obtained from say californian hops differs appreciably in odor from one prepared from bavarian or kent gross the hydrocarbon myrcene is a very mobile liquid having a penetrating and not unpleasant odor and undergoes conversion into a non-volatile resinous substance on exposure to the air as this change takes place with great readiness and as the myrcene constitutes about forty to fifty per cent of the fresh oil it will easily be understood that the yield of volatile oil from hops a few months old is very considerably less than from the same hops when freshly picked the humulene is a representative of the class of substances known as sesquiterpenes and when pure possess very little odor nor does it undergo any appreciable change when exposed to the air it is usually present in fresh oil to the extent of about forty per cent the oil is almost insoluble in water about one part in twenty thousand parts but it dissolves a little more readily in a weak alcoholic liquid such as beer slight however as its solubility is it is yet ample for flavoring purposes for as with most essential oils its odor and flavor are most apparent 
when it is in a highly diluted condition. I have pointed out that it is volatile with steam, and as might be supposed it is very largely lost when the hops are boiled with the wort, almost the whole passing away into the air with the escaping steam. The fragrant smell in the neighborhood of a brewery when the wort is being boiled affords some evidence of this. To minimize the effect of this loss, most brewers are in the habit of adding a proportion of the best hops to the copper shortly before the conclusion of the boiling period. It appears very probable, however, that the flavor, other than bitter, communicated to the wort by the hops is due not so much to the volatile oil itself as to the solution of a small quantity of the resinous oxidation products of the oil, which are not volatile with steam, and which possess a smell and flavor very similar to those of the oil itself. In certain classes of beer it is customary to add a small quantity, one quarter pound or one half pound, of hops to the beer in the cask, and in this case the oil will, of course, play a more important part, as some of it passes into solution and so communicates to the beer its characteristic flavor and aroma. It may be added that unlike many essential oils, the oil of hops does not possess any antiseptic properties. We now come to a brief consideration of those highly important constituents, the resins and bitter substances, which are not only flavoring agents, but which exercise the even more important function of preserving the beer from deteriorating effects of bacterial activity. The chemistry of these substances is lamentably incomplete, notwithstanding the large amount of work which has been devoted to their study. Three distinct resins have been up to the present isolated, known respectively as the alpha, beta, and gamma resins, the first two being possessed of antiseptic properties and the last being devoid of any such power. For technical purposes, it is customary to distinguish merely between the so-called soft and hard resins, the former being soluble and the latter insoluble in light petroleum. It is to the soft resins that the preservative properties of the hop are ascribed. This division is not a very scientific one, for both classes of resin unquestionably consist of a number of substances about which little is known. It has nevertheless the advantage of being convenient, and does to some extent at least connote a difference which is of technological importance. The soft resin is an exceedingly unstable substance and tends to pass very readily into the hard. This change occurs in the hops during ordinary storage, and it is to this that the greatly reduced preservative value of old hops is due. It has been found that when hops, instead of being kept at ordinary atmospheric temperatures, are stored at temperatures between 30 degrees Fahrenheit and 40 degrees Fahrenheit, the activity of the various chemical changes which produce such marked deterioration is greatly reduced. The following table, due to Briant, shows for example the influence of temperature on the proportions of soft and hard resins in the same hops when stored for the same time. Hops as put in bottle. Soft, 11.75. Hard, 3.16. Total, 14.91. A. Hops stored 7 months at 72 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit. Soft, 8.82. Hard, 5.94. Total, 14.76. B. Hops stored 7 months at 55 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Soft, 9.21. Hard, 5.15. Total, 14.36. C. Hops stored 7 months at 35 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Soft, 10.67. Hard, 4.20. Total, 14.87. D. Hops stored 7 months at below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Soft, 
hard, 3.57, total, 14.67. At the present time, very large quantities of hops are cold stored as soon as bought, and the brewer is then able to avail himself late in the season of a material possessing preservative powers but little inferior to those of the original hop. In close genetic relationship with these resins stand certain substances of acid character, several of which have been obtained in a crystalline condition. These are the so-called hop bitter acids. These substances, like the resins, are characterized by great instability, passing readily into resins, either on exposure to air or when boiled with water. One of these acids yields mainly valeric acid in oxidation, and it is to this that the cheesy odor of old hops is due. Since the preservative properties of hops do undoubtedly reside in the so-called soft resins, many attempts have been made to regard the percentage of these resins as the basis of a chemical evaluation of hops for brewing purposes. Speaking in general terms, it is unquestionably true that those hops, e.g., high-class Bavarian, Californian, etc., which contain the largest proportions of soft resin as determined by extraction with light petroleum, are those which practical experience has shown to have the strongest preservative properties in practice, and there can be no doubt that the method is, within certain limits, a very useful one. It cannot be denied, however, that it has its limitations, and much work will have to be done before the precise parts played by the various resins and bitter acids in the preservation of beer is fully understood. It has already been stated that the resins occur almost entirely in the lupulin, of which they constitute from 50% to 70% or more. Hops grown in different countries differ not only in the percentage of resin which they contain, but also in their aroma, which depends on the precise composition of the essential oil, a fact which often influences the brewer in selecting the blend of hops to be used. Hops, like very many other plants, contain tannin, in amount varying from 3% to 5 or 6%. At one time considerable importance was attached to this constituent, since it was thought to be a potent factor in the coagulation and subsequent removal of undesirable protein matters from the wort. That it is operative to a small extent in this direction is true, but there is no ground for supposing that any definite connection exists between the richness in tannin of hops and their value to the brewer. In addition to the above constituents, hops contain gum-like bodies and a number of nitrogenous compounds, the precise significance of which in brewing technology is not yet completely understood. It had long been known that the addition of a small quantity of fresh hops to beer in cask was usually followed by an outburst of fermentation, a fact which did not receive an adequate explanation, until Brown and Morris showed that, like most plants, they contain diastasy, which, of course, converts some of the malodextrin present into readily fermentable maltose. With this brief account of the more important constituents of the hop, it will now be possible to understand the general character of the changes occurring during the boiling process, and it will perhaps conduce to clearness if we consider seriatim the five objects given on page 45. The first, and not the least important, is the sterilization of the wort. It will be readily understood that, the wort when it reaches the copper contains enormous numbers of living organisms of many kinds, chiefly bacteria, yeast, and molds, derived from the surface of the malt and other materials used in the mash tun, the mashing temperatures being as a rule too low to affect the destruction of vast numbers of such organisms. Although hopped wort does not constitute a very favorable medium for the development of many of these, and beer is still less favorable, 
yet those capable of developing would be sufficiently numerous to render the finished beer bad and undrinkable in a very short time during the boiling period however these are all destroyed and the wort when it leaves the copper is perfectly sterile that is it contains no living organism of any description the second object of the boiling process is to arrest the action of the diastase it has already been pointed out in the previous chapter that the character of the beer produced is very largely dependent on the nature of the carbohydrate constituents of the wort when it leaves the mash tun and that this in turn is dependent upon the extent to which the diastase of the malt has been allowed to act upon the starch this part of the process is capable of being closely controlled by the brewer who is able to so adapt the conditions to the material to be used as to produce a wort having just the degree of fermentability required since the diastase is not destroyed at the temperatures of the mash tun but retains much of its activity in the wort it is clear that unless steps are taken to arrest this activity the conversion process taking place during mashing would continue with the result that unduly large proportions of maltose would be formed and the resulting product after fermentation would be merely an alcoholic liquid with little or none of the reserve carbohydrate material needful for cask fermentation and possessing none of the characters of beer on boiling however this diastic activity is completely arrested and so the composition of the wort is fixed in regard to the third object mentioned on page forty five namely the extraction of the flavoring and preservative constituents of the hops it will not be necessary to say very much in view of the description of those constituents which has been given above from what has been said it will have been gathered that the bittering and preservative constituents of the hop are not clearly distinguishable but that both sets of properties are resident in the bitter acids and resins owing to their great instability these substances are quickly decomposed in the copper becoming largely converted into antiseptically inert substances and consequently their subjection to a prolonged period of boiling is objectionable on the other hand the full bittering effect is not so easily obtained and consequently the brewer is compelled to adopt a procedure which is in the nature of a compromise that is to say some of the hops are added at the commencement of boiling the remainder usually the best being added shortly before the completion of the process in this way it is probable that the best results are obtained from the hops both in respect of preservation and flavoring reference has already been made to the advantage of this procedure in reducing to some extent the loss of essential oil the quality of the hops and the proportions used will naturally depend upon the class of beer to be brewed thus in the brewing of stock pale ales and bitter beers larger quantities of hops and those of superior kinds will have to be used than in the case of mild beers the reasons for this are twofold in the first place the former beers must have more hop flavor than the latter and in the second they are usually expected to remain sound for a much longer period and consequently need more of the preservative constituents in beers brewed for export this is particularly the case since such beers are often exposed to a very great strain as for example in tropical countries and in their production large proportions of the best and strongest hops are invariably employed it may not be out of place to refer here to an important difference between the great bulk of the beer brewed in this country and the lager beer of the continent and america the latter beer when brewed is kept for a considerable time often some months in casks stored in cellars kept nearly at the freezing point when this lagering process is complete the beer is transferred to the trade casks and it must be quickly consumed if it is to be drunk at its best 
In the brewing of these beers, the continental or American brewer uses a much smaller proportion of hops than is usual in this country for stock beers. The reason being that whilst the English brewer has to rely almost entirely on the hops for the keeping of his beer, the lager beer is preserved by being kept at very low temperatures. We may now consider the fourth object of boiling, that is, the precipitation of undesirable protein matters. The mash tun wort contains nitrogenous substances of many kinds, together with such comparatively simple substances as amino acids and amides. It contains soluble and non-coagulable products of protein hydrolysis, such as proteosis and peptones, and finally, more complicated proteins which, though soluble in the wort at the temperature at which it leaves the mash tun, are converted into insoluble substances, coagulated on boiling. It has already been pointed out that during the malting, germination process, the proteins of barley undergo considerable change, being converted by the proteolytic enzymes of the grain into simpler and more soluble products. The resulting malt, therefore, contains a much larger proportion of its nitrogen in the form of soluble and non-coagulable products than is the case with the barley from which it has been made, and this process of enzymic hydrolysis and simplification proceeds during the mashing process. Many of these simpler nitrogenous substances are necessary for the nutrition of the yeast during the subsequent process of fermentation, and their presence in the wort in sufficient quantity is therefore of the highest importance. The more complex proteins, however, are so far as is known useless for the purpose, and as their presence in the finished beer could only have the effect of seriously diminishing its keeping properties, to say nothing of its brilliancy, their removal is in the highest degree desirable. Fortunately, these proteins are rendered insoluble on boiling and can, therefore, be readily removed when the boiled wort is subsequently filtered in the hop back. The last object of the boiling process is to effect the requisite concentration of the wort. In order to wash out of the grains in the mash tun the whole of the soluble saccharine matters, it is necessary to employ somewhat considerable volumes of water, and some of this has to be removed by evaporation in order to reduce the wort to the necessary volume and gravity. A moment's consideration will show that in the brewing of, say, 100 barrels of beer, it is necessary to use much more than 100 barrels of water, quite apart from that required for washing purposes and for cooling. In the first place, the spent grains left in the mash tun retain a considerable quantity amounting to nearly 30 gallons for every quarter of malt mashed. Then there is the loss by evaporation in the copper, and subsequently during cooling, the quantity retained by the hops in the hop back. And finally, there is a small loss due to the transference of the wort from one vessel to another. Speaking roughly, it may be said that in the actual brewing of 100 barrels of beer, about 130 barrels of water would be required. Brewers' coppers vary a good deal in construction, the majority being open, whilst others are closed and so constructed that the wort can be boiled under slight pressure. The effect of the increased pressure is, of course, to raise the boiling point of the wort a few degrees and to bring about the extraction of rather more matter from the hops than would be the case with an open copper. It may be doubted whether this is ever desirable, and the general consensus of opinion is undoubtedly in favor of boiling under ordinary atmospheric pressure. Boiling by steam is largely replacing the older method of fire boiling, being cleaner and more convenient and more economical. When the wort has been boiled for the requisite time, usually about two hours, it is allowed to flow from the copper into a wooden or metal vessel known as the hop-back. This may be of any convenient shape, usually round or rectangular, 
and is provided with a false bottom consisting of a series of perforated metal plates. The object of this vessel is to retain the spent hops, and to allow the wort to be drawn off in a fairly bright condition. Since the hops absorb a good deal of wort, it is usual either to wash this out by sparging with hot water, as after mashing, or to obtain it by means of a suitable press, to which the residual spent hops are transferred. The layer of hops which covers the false bottom acts as an excellent filtering medium, keeping back the coagulated proteins referred to above, and enabling the wort to pass to the next stage in a purer and brighter condition. From this point of view, it is obviously desirable that the area of the hop back should not be too large in relation to the volume of the wort to be dealt with, so that a layer of hops sufficiently deep for good filtration may be obtained. It may perhaps be mentioned here that the quantity of hops used in the brewing of beer in this country varies from about one pound per barrel of beer in the case of mild ales to four or five times that quantity in the case of fine pale ales, strong stouts, and certain export beers. When sugar materials, invert sugar, cane sugar, glucose, etc., are used, it is customary to dissolve them in a separate vessel and to run the solution into the copper, or they may be added directly to the wort in the copper itself. In Chapter 3, reference has been made to the fact that the various classes of beer require for their production water of different mineral character, if the best results are to be obtained. Taking on the one hand a soft alkaline water, such as is obtained from the deep wells in and around London, and on the other a hard, gypseous water, such as that derived from the wells in Burton-on-Trent, it may be useful to refer here to certain differences which these waters exhibit and which are of importance from the brewing point of view. In the first place, the softer water will prove rather more extractive in the mash tun and also in the copper. From the hops it has a tendency to dissolve certain coarse and unpleasant bitter substances which are not dissolved to the same extent by the harder water, and it also produces wort and beer of a rather higher color. Warts, moreover, which have been brewed with a hard, gypseous water, break better on boiling than those brewed with the soft alkaline supply. That is to say, the coagulable proteins which are rendered insoluble during boiling form larger and more coherent masses, and so are removed more completely during the hop-back filtration mentioned above. End of chapter 4